Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. So welcome back again to Once a DJ. This is the pilot of the video format. Thanks to Mr. Rob Webster, who's with us. Multi-genre DJ, former resident of one of the UK's biggest club nights, top 10 record producer from When the Top 10 Mattered, and much more. Rob Webster, a.k.a. Rob Jam Webb, a.k.a. Boy Wonder. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome, Adam. How are you, mate? I'm good. Excellent. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. So, yeah, let's kick it off. I've actually got a bit of research and some questions to mm-hmm. make the editing a bit sure. easier. So I think the first thing to get into is just looking at where your um, kind of for music came from. Okay. Right. Well, um, I was born into music. I literally had no choice. Um, when I was born, my dad named me after Led Zeppelin. So my name is Robert James, which is named after Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. So from the off, mate, I was no, you know, literally um, born into that. My dad was a huge music fan. He was a massive gig goer. Like, is no, the only people he never saw were the Beatles, pretty much, and everyone else he's seen. It was worth seeing in those mm. days. Um, anyway, so I was surrounded by music all them, all my childhood. And then when I got to the age of seven, in 84, my cousin, who was a few years older than me, he was 14, came around my house one day with a, an electro tape, the tape called Electro Crucial. And he was saying, oh, everyone's dancing to this music. Let's watch this. He taught me how to body pop. I was eight, eight years old. He was 13, 14. I had no idea what it was. And we spent the whole weekend dancing in my garden to Electro Crucial. So it was tunes like Hashi, Mal Nafish, Tyrone Sm- Bronson, The Smurf. Africa Bambata, Wild Style, all that. Um, and it just literally grabbed me instantly. Even from that young age, I knew, you know, I knew that there was this was something I really enjoyed. And then within that that space of that year, I went to see Beach Street at the cinema with my dad. I went to see Breakdance to the movie with my mum at the cinema. And then I had, you know, I started collecting electro albums and then it evolved into Public Enemy, Eric B, LL Cool J, Beastie Boys. Then it was De La Soul, NWA, and then, you know, Tribe Called Quest, Gangstar, and on it went, do you know what I mean? And then at the same time of all of that, I was interested in the Acid House thing as well, because pop charts were like Inner City, Big Fun, um, you know, Derek May, all that kind of stuff was coming out of Chicago and Detroit. And that was in the pop charts, Ride on Time, Black Box, all those kind of pop dance records. And then obviously that was coexisting at the same time as the hip hop yeah. movement was. So those two were constantly uh, intertwined and as I was growing up. And also I was a massive Pet Shop Boys fan as well as a teenager. So it was kind of uh, either the Pet Shop Boys or the Smiths, you know what I mean? And I didn't want to be the Smiths, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Pet Shop Boys were more electronic, which was more geared to what I did. And, and, and it, that's how it evolved. That's how my musical taste evolved as a teenager. And then when I got to six, uh, 16, 
um, I went to do work experience at BPM Records uh, in Derby, and that was in late 92. Um, and the irony was that my English teacher got me that gig, got me that week mm. experience, because um, he was friends with Dave who BPM. Um, anyway, um, the funny thing was all my mates who ended up doing crappy things like Asda and, or going to some factory for a week, and I got the land at a record shop, which was just for me, it was just a dream, mate. Yeah. Especially at that era during the rave era, it was 92, the rave club scene was just, the rave scene was just pettering out, and the club scene was just starting to evolve. So just at that point then, um, your kind of journey through hip-hop and things was, um, was that with a bunch of mates or was that solo? Was it you on your own? It was me pursuing it because how I would pick up on things would obviously was Top of the Pops and my dad was friends with a guy called Paul Needham who used to own a pub in town called the Old Nelson, Lord Nelson, which is now, I don't know if it's a, I think it's a microbrewery now, you know, on the corner of, it was, it was D's not long ago. It's becoming a burger joint next. Right, whatever it is now. But in, it's originally called the Lord Nelson. And my dad's friend, Paul Needham, was the landlord of that. And they shared a, a, a love of jazz together. And I was a child growing up in the 80s. And Paul used to run a pirate radio station from the roof of the pub. Um, and him and Russell, Russell Davison, who later became my boss and mentor on Free Progress. And those guys used to run a pirate radio station up there. And I used to tune into that around 87, 88. And Russell would play you know, acid ass and early rave and hip hop and whatever. Um, so I'd always tuned into that. I used to tape it and I was like 10, 11 years old and I was always looking for music and my dad used to buy the NME every week for the gig guide. So I always, would always see in the NME pictures of Public Enemy, the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, whoever, whoever was hot at that time. So it was always about discovering it through older people around me. Um, I didn't I didn't pursue it like, my, you know, I was only a kid, do you know what I mean? But I would just pick up what I could around me. Um, and then obviously used to borrow tapes from mates when you got to secondary school, you met older kids yeah. who had, you know, I was introduced to NWA by school friends and it was like, you know, gangster rap was a whole new thing. And it was like, wow, you know, um, having no concept of the meaning of the songs, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, what I mean? like straight out of Compton, having no idea what it meant, having no idea what Public Enemy's album meant, but I just fell in love with it. You know, I had no idea of the lyrical concept of it until I was an adult. But as a kid, it was just this rebellious loud noise do you know what I mean it was just breakbeats and blah 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 and it was it was fun so it, it was all through self-exploration yeah. but taking from those around me you know what I mean that that were in the know I suppose yeah because I think that's when you can kind of forge your own path isn't it you get this like originality because um, you're not going through just one lineage for your musical inspiration so if we just go back then to the um, work experience that was that was amazing. I did a five day run at BPM, and it was in late '92. And I can remember Whitney Houston was number one in the, chart, in the pop charts with "I Will Always Love You." Mm. The Bodyguard had just come out, so that was we used to sell the charts in the AC. So it was they, they did everything. It wasn't just an independent retailer. They sold the pop charts. They sold indie, house, hip hop, soul, techno, drum and bass, a lot. So they covered every aspect of independent music, as well as commercial. So you know it was it was amazing experience. And then obviously I went back to school. And finished my school year that year. And then in the April of 93, I left school. Um, and basically, um, I wrote to Dave at BPM. I wrote my letter back in the days when you'd write a letter, you know, and say, remember me from work experience, have you got any jobs? And he, and I rang him up a week later. I thought, I, I've not heard anything for a week. So I thought, right, I'm just going to walk in and just ask. If he says no, so what? Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, Rob, I forgot to reply. Sorry, blah, 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 I've been busy. Yeah, we've got a YTS opening if you want it, which is a YTS, for anyone listening, is a youth training scheme programme, which the Tory government created back in the 80s and early 90s, where 
you basically it's like an apprenticeship basically but you did you got paid 30 pound a week and you could claim your bus fare and that was it but it didn't matter i had the job of my dreams do you know what i mean yeah um i could and you know i could have been on a building site or in some horrible sweaty factory but you know because the options that back then were, were were limited unless you created your own same now i suppose but um so anyway, yeah, I, I started working for BPM uh, as a youth training scheme apprentice, as a retail apprentice, and it, it instantly, you know, within days, it just they they could see my enthusiasm and my love for music. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't it, it immediately surrounded me with a lot of older people. Some people my age, some you know, the customers I'm talking to, like yeah. there would be eighteen year old, nineteen year old bedroom DJs, club DJs, and then there would be the older crowd that came in that were probably in their thirties that had been around since the 70s and 80s that were clients, customers. And, you know, so you learnt from them. Do you know what I mean? I started picking up. I, le- I learnt about um, jazz funk through some of the clients like James Brown, Fred Wesley. That stuff started grabbing my, you know, my soul a bit. Um, and then I started picking up on the older house stuff that I'd missed out on, you know, the Chicago stuff, because I was dealing with um, reps on the phone, importers on the phone, yeah. who would import stuff from America weekly. And I was like, "Oh, can you get this on DJ International? Can you get this off Tracks Records? Yeah, we can get we can get all these pressings." And so, you know, instantly I was just—it was Christmas every day, mate. Do you know what I mean? Did you become a buyer there then? God, absolutely, yeah. Not not straight away. Obviously, I have to learn. This isn't months down the line, but um, you—the reps would either come in or ring up. So you would have your, your mainstream reps like EMI, Parlophone, Sony, Warner's, etc. They would come in and give you the chart stuff, pop albums, and so on. And then you'd have your independent reps, Network Records, which was, um, I think, is it Neil Rushton? The guy who used to own Network and Alternate and all those rave bands right. um, in a city. He had a rep for Network and they sold all the techno in the house and the underground stuff. There was Moe's Music, they sold loads of bootlegs. And then there was the dodgy guys that came around selling bootlegs, white label guys from Liverpool. I'll mm-hmm. get into that later if you want. But um, And then you'd have the independent reps, other, other labels that were like Amato, you know, the distributors. There's like distributors like Amato, Pinnacle. Um, SRD, they're all probably folded now, but they were independent distributors for little small labels, you know. So um, they would come in and you would skim through the records and you'd, they'd give you a pile of stock, you'd go through it, uh, five of them, three of them, two of them, and they'd go out to the van, bring it in, cash on delivery or put it on the accounts. It was it was just a, a community, you know, a, a self-sufficient community, dance music was, or club any sort of independent re- music retail. And it was it was just um, everybody contributed um, to the to the to the cause. You know what I mean? The the guys would make white labels. They would pass them on to the distributor. The distributor would go around the record shops around the Midlands or the North, and that's how things got about. That's how things went viral. You know, that's how tracks went popular. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was it was um, it was a very it was Christmas every day. That's the only way I can I can put it. Yeah. So we've had a couple of people on where we've talked about certain record shops and. Um I think to do with when I started buying records, I didn't really experience this because it was mainly kind of, maybe it had kind of been and gone. But you had those shops where it was sort of almost intimidated to ask for a certain record. Um, was that sort of culture there? No, not at all, not in BPM. I mean, some people um, probably felt intimidated because of that kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, that, that reputation that, that record shops had. I mean, I myself experienced it, you know, when you go to select a disc, in Nottingham, mm. they were very much like that. They were kind of gatekeepers. That's the word. Um, yeah. Whereas no, if I bought, if I was, if I bought thirty copies of the latest white label, 
I want to sell those 30 copies of the white label. It's not in my interest to keep them under the counter. Mm. If there was something that came out that was probably three copies came in, I would probably save those first three copies for myself, Pete from Progress or another DJ that we would use that weekend. And then I would order them another 10 the week after. Do you know what I mean? When I could get hold of them again, you know, but no way. It, it wasn't in, in our interest to withhold stuff and be kind of, I'm not helping you kind of thing. It was anyone coming, anyone coming. We used to have, back in those days, we'd have, you know, female DJs come in, female bedroom DJs and that, that's starting out. And they were, were just, you just, you know, they would often be more felt intimidated because it was mostly in those days, a men's environment. You know, it's completely changed now, which is great. But in those days, there was only a handful of women DJs. So now in those days, anybody that came in the shop, doesn't matter what you are or how old you were or what you were, who you were, you were a customer. If you were buying, we would go, right, have you heard this? Have you tried that? Have you heard this? Because we'd pick up on what they'd bring to the counter. Can I listen to these, please? Yeah, of course you can. You'd look at them. Right, okay, that's deep house, whatever. Have you tried this track? And then you'd pull some more out and, and assist them. That was, that was the enthusiasm for me, getting people to hear new stuff, do you know? Yeah. Or, or going, have you heard this track? And they'd go, oh, I've heard that in a club. Can I have that as well? And it's a sale, isn't it? That's... <laughs> Not sitting on stock, mate. I, I don't. I don't believe that. You know, I never believe that. So, when and where did you start DJing then? Literally, um, in clubs. The first gig I ever did was in September '93. Um, it was at the warehouse, which is basically what was became Mosh. So, how old would you have been then? Just turned seventeen. How long had you had Dex? Oh, about a year. So prior to that, for, well, do you know what? Tell the truth. Tell the lie. Sorry. In '91, I bought two. <laughs> I bought two. Uh, midi hi-fis stack hi-fis right and i used to just put them next to each other and just play the record and turn the volume up like this because i didn't have a mixer i didn't and obviously they weren't connected one had its own speakers the other had its own speakers and just used to faff around doing that and also prior to that i had a twin tape deck and i used to do tape mixers when i was about 13 14 and then i would pause a part of a track like mega mixers you know and then record and forward the next bit tape editing basically without realizing that was what the word was and just do pause mixers, used to call them, pause mixers, yeah. and then make a mega mix of a tape and just do that. But proper decks, yeah, um, late 92, um, early 93, I got my first proper decks. And there was like a, one was a Pioneer, not Pioneer, sorry, Panasonic uh, belt drive, and the other was a Technics belt drive. And the pitch was a little wheel at the front. And you could, you could, you know, if you to mix, you could, you have to move the wheel, like a, yeah. literally like a rotary, tiny, tiny wheel. It's like a half wheel popping out. And used to mix them like that and had a realistic mixer from Tandy, which cost about 30 quid or something like that. Um, and that was my first setup. And you had to weigh the, you know, I used to we put a penny on the yeah. thing now for scratching. You used to put like 20, 30 pennies on it, you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. to make it weigh down. So, yeah, that was all, it was all part of the course, isn't it? You know, you, and then the first Technics decks I got in late 94. My dad, for me, 18th, my dad bought me some Technics. I got two Technics 12s for 500 quid. So, I mean, I don't know, I'm just about a grand now, aren't they? Yeah, they seem to hold a value a lot now. Um, so they're kind of back up more expensive than they were when we would have been buying. But I know there was a dip around the sort of digital adoption where I know our good friend Hudson got a couple for, I think it was 300 quid for the pair. But yeah, at the moment, yeah, they're not cheap at all. Yeah. I mean, these two are replacements because, as I say, I sold my decks in 2009, I think. Yeah. Um, I got rid of them eventually. I, sat, I, I don't know why I did it, actually, but again. Um, but yeah, uh, th th they were my first decks, but that was my first My first DJing experience was in late 93. Basically, Russell did this night called Kissing, and it was a Friday night at the same venue that Progress was at, 
but it was just a mixture of everything, you know, pop, house, R&B, indie, whatever. Um, and I said, Russell, let, please let me do the first two hours. Let me do the first hours. I was begging him, you know, I was, I was keen as anything. I was only 17, 16. And uh, he says, right, you can do the first two hours and then you can do the lights for me after. I says, yeah, 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 I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Just wanted to get my foot in that door, you know what I mean? Um, and I did it and I just loved it. And it just kept me on. And every Friday for, for about a year, we just did that. And then, but on the Saturday... Because I was doing the lights on the Friday, I would go to the club on the Saturday um, in the summer of '93, and he gradually employed me to do the lights, to be his run around. I did all sorts of little jobs, anything I could to be a part of a, yeah. a club scene. Do you know what I mean? So that first night you were doing, were you kind of multi-genre? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was hip hop, it was R and B, it was a bit of dance pop, you know, whatever was right at that time. I don't know, records like Crystal Waters and Robin S and yeah. into bloody even stuff like the far side, you know, or, or that kind of fun hip hop, you know, yeah, Tribe Called yeah. Quest, Dada Soul, that sort of stuff. Um but yeah, it was it was a it wasn't a full on, you know, serious club music. It was that was for Saturday. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So when did Progress start? Progress started in December ninety two at the warehouse, which is mosh, obviously. Um, well, it's not mosh anymore, is it? But anyway, so it started late 92, uh, and I started going in May 93. So six months in, I started going. Um, and by the end of the year, I was DJing for them and playing regularly at their uh, warming up and doing um, the Hot Trot one as well. They used to do a monthly night at Mansfield every month called Hot Trot from October 93 right on through to 95. And I would DJ, we had two rooms there, so I would DJ there every month as well in the second room so yeah uh, that was how I got my foot in the door it was kind of you know working in the record shop meeting Russell developing a relationship with him and Pete and then working in the club for him and you know yeah and it just evolves yeah we'll get into how big progress became but what was it like in those early days what was it like musically musically it was it was extremely experimental I say experimental that's the wrong word to use but extremely diverse like we became so commercial in the end because everything became commercial. By the end of the 90s, it was it, it exhausted itself. But 92, 93, 94, 95, those three years, um, you would we, we would book, say, for example, Folly Jackmaster Funk one week, Marshall Jefferson the next week, which these guys were icons so yeah. at that point, even then. And then the week after, we would have, say, Lisa Loud or Smoking Joe, the two female DJs that were running the circuit back in those days. Then we would have Jeremy Healy, who was a big puller. He was the biggest DJ in the country at that time. Um, then Pete Tong. But then we would have Andy Weverall. Do you know what I mean? We'd book Andy yeah. Weverall and he came twice. Mm. So we had this uh, one week, someone playing real handbag house, hands in the air. And then the week later, Weatherall would come along and do some obscure techno sort of set. But it worked. It just worked. People were a bit more open-minded. Progress was this kind of, at the warehouse, because it could only get 300 in there. It was this kind of exclusive club at that time. The other clubs you had at the time were Ritz, Sears, Coconut, the commercial places and the music we played in there was a lot there was some commercial stuff being played but it was before it was commercial you know what i mean it was the promos of k classes latest single or the, you yeah. know it was a lot more um underground some djs would play tribal house you know um junior vasquez style stuff and then other people would play um more banging sort of trancey stuff you know kind of early i say early trance kind of progressive melodic trance was it quite an exclusive sort of crowd it was a family-based crowd. It was a very yeah. family-based... Everybody knew everybody. The core crowd that went, there'd be probably... Out of the 300, there'd probably be 150, 200 that were every week. And those would come from Birmingham, Northampton, you know, Stoke. Some people used to come up from London. You know, it, it would be 
people would travel to it and then there were those that dipped in and then dipped out um didn't like it you know whatever but the, when you got in there the atmosphere was so intense like good good yeah. intensity you know what i mean and it, you could just it was just the place was just like sardines in a tin it was just it was mental people literally would climb into the rafters sometimes and it would place where the walls would sweat it, it was amazing you know, it was an amazing, amazing vibe. And there is there is a, a video from 1990, early 93. Um, of- hey guys, I hope you're enjoying DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Wunter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oneTodj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Of uh, Russell, of progress being filmed at the warehouse, which came out on a TV show called, B, called BPM, which was run by Dave Durrell. Um, and it's disappeared off YouTube, and I don't know where it's gone, but it just shows you the atmosphere of what it was in those days. But yeah, it was it was electric. So from there, you were doing the record shop by day then, and uh, Progress at Night, and Russell's Other Night. Did you just stay with those, or were you trying to push the DJing outside of... I, I wasn't trying to push anything. It was coming to me. Yeah. Because of the positioning of the shop. Because basically, promoters would come in, and they'd go, oh, I'm putting this night on here. Would you want to play next month? And I go, yeah, and I go, oh, I could put a post up for us. And it was kind of like a trade-off, you know, put some posts up, promote the night for us in the shop, give people flyers, and and they'd get a gig out of it. Not that that was the intention, but that was just how it evolved. And more promoters came in, and you got to know more promoters. Um, and that's where I met John Beckley, and he, he, who I'm still working for, funnily enough, and he would do nights at the club across the road called The Low Club, with the dial. It's not, it's not there anymore. Um, and we'd put events on there as well. So in at that time in Derby, it was a, it was a super club mecca because you had progress on the Frygate, you had shopping John Beckley's night at the Low Club, the Dial across the road, and behind there you had Renaissance, Renaissance were here for a year and a half, um, and we thought we were gonna you know lose out to Renaissance, but it turned out the opposite way. They ended up losing out to us. Um, but basically, Derby had three really good club nights within a half a mile radius, a quarter of a mile radius of each other. And all three were busy. In, un, unheard of these days. You know, to have one club night in, in, yeah. in anywhere now, you know, that's, that's sustainable. But yeah, it was the work, would, the work would just come to me based on my position, I suppose, in a sense. Not to say that I wasn't deserving of these gigs or I was good, wasn't good enough. It was just that I was central to the scene at that time. I worked in the record shop. I was on site every day. 
And that's, that's you know, that's probably one of the main reasons why I grew quickly at a young age. Yeah. Did that pull you in a specific musical direction then? No, I, I was always, I was always been open, an open sort of genre sort of DJ. My, my set set progress would be mostly house, depending on what time I was on. If I was warming up from nine till 10, I would play garage, US garage mostly. And then if I was doing the one till two slot or something after the guest, it would be full on harder stuff, you know, big hands in the air tracks. And then at the hot truck gigs in Mansfield on a monthly basis, that would be the downstairs room. So then I would do the hip hop, the scratch DJ and all the sort of, you know, DMC style stuff with some disco, with some funk. That would be for that room because it would be in the chill out room there. So the main room was Carl Cox, it was Paul Aikenfold, it was John the Please Women, whoever. So we kept it different downstairs, you see. So that would be that. I had, I always had this, and it's the same today. I will always have an open genre sort of... I was like a bar DJ before bar DJs existed. Yeah. In the chill-out rooms and that. I would do the funk and the hip-hop and blah, blah, blah. But house-wise, would, I would be varied. I would never stick to one thing. I think that's been a bit of a gift and a curse for me because I can, I've can. i never stuck to one genre. I get so bored. Even now, producing music, I will never stick to one genre. It's got. I've got to change all the time. Like some producers will develop one sound which is the ideal thing to do. But for me, I've, I've just got this, you know, I've, I can't sit still, I can't. So I need to, I'm always changing and chopping and changing. So DJ-wise, yeah, it's an open book pretty much for me. Yeah, and I think how much do you just want to keep replicating and replicating? It bears down on a lot of creative people. Um, so your profile was kind of growing as the perception of the DJ was changing. So you were getting pulled along, your trajectory was up, and all of a sudden... Were you becoming kind of the um, limelight and the focal point for people? Uh, as a resident DJ at Progress, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then as the mid-90s developed, I started doing regular slots in Leicester, Nottingham, Mansfield, you know, all over. And then I would do these tours. I'd get roped into these tours um, from Progress. Like we did a Malibu tour. We were sponsored by Malibu to go and do 20 dates across the UK mm. for three months or whatever it was. Um and it was just, uh, you know, so you would end up going off and, and developing your name out into these other clubs. But most of them were just dives, but, you know, they were just... But that was... That, to develop your name in that sense, was, like, a bit different because you were kind of fly by night, you know. You weren't... You couldn't really develop your name unless you were on a, on the similar circuit over and over again. So, for example, the club scene then, Money Penny's Progress, um, Gate, not Gate Crusher, but um, Renaissance, uh, Stoke, Golden, all those kind of clubs, the Hacienda, all of those would have a similar circuit of DJs play, rotate. So that's how they developed their names. Whereas me, I kind of stayed more more regional. Leicester, I was got, I got a bit of a name in Leicester for a while, and then Derby and Mansfield. So I didn't really, um, I didn't really divert. I was more the centre in Derby. Yeah. than anywhere else because this was my home base and it was kind of there was so much going on in Derby I didn't really venture out unless I was pushed out by Progress to do a tour because I didn't need to because the sense of the universe was here you know the Progress was getting in a thousand people a week by this point you know place was going off why go anywhere else do you know what I mean but obviously we did do we toured all over you know we'd, on a Friday night I would go to I mean God I've been all over the country DJing like you know, as far as, you know, Newcastle way and then all the way down to Southampton, I've been all over. But they were on progress tours where we would all go together. But that would yeah. be a Friday night. And then we'd come back and then do progress on the Saturday. And that's where, you know, the, like I say, the central central point was. So with all this happening when you were quite young, did you manage to keep your ego in check? Because I know, like, in Derby, it's a small city. I came down in 2000. 
And um, it is somewhere where you'll just walk into people that you know. And I'd imagine people would have treated you as a bit of a big deal at that point. I don't look, look looking back, we were all arrogant at that point. That was definitely, <laughs> I was definitely not arrogant in the sense that um, I thought I was something special. Of course, no, I was just playing records. That was it. But it was kind of like um, everybody knew my face. That would be it. that would be it. Yeah. Anybody that would w- would circuit. I mean, I used to ha- you know where we used to hang around Sadlergate Strand, that end of town. Um, you know, people got to know who I was, um, but they were only people in the same bucket as me. Do you know what I mean? Right. And that was kind of like, and we all knew everyone. I knew all the clothes shop owners. Do you know what I mean? I know who all the the regulars were at Progress. I got to know them all. They got to know me. It was you know I knew all, who all the bad egg, ba- the bad eggs were. I knew you know who not to cross and who, you know what I mean? It was, you got to know who everyone was. It was one big melting pot of people. But no, God, I mean, we, we, all, we all probably at some point in our lives get, you know, a bit cocky and that's and that's through a lot of it. It's kind of alcohol related as well, you know, and things like mm. that. But I had I had a core set of friends um, in those days. And funnily enough, I've still got a couple of those friends who are still in that core circle. You know, um, a lot of people have passed through the tapestry of life but you know uh in terms of being an ego and anything like that no i didn't i didn't seek out the limelight or anything like that i mean i could easily have done um but no definitely not there was there was there were some people i worked with that have that had a massive attitude problem who i'm not going to (laughs) name but still anyway my friends who are watching this will know who i mean so anyway yeah that was it um but yeah no not yes and no i suppose you you know Suppose when you're 18 and you 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 feel like they're on top of the world, it's like you know it's, it's you're floating on a cloud, aren't you? And, yeah. But it was a cloud that was really you know that lasted a long time. It was great. So you mentioned about Russell, um, Russell Davison, and you mentioned that he was a mentor to you. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Russell was 10 years or is 10 years older than me. Um, so by the time I came along in '93, he was 26, and he'd already been putting nights on since the mid 80s. Um, he did Derby's. He did one of the country's first acid house nights in '87 at the Blue Note, um, and he used to DJ with Graham Park, um, who was a hacienda DJ, mm. and Terry. Oh, I forgot his name now. The guy that used to be the presenter on the Word Channel Four TV oh, Terry show. Christian. Terry Christian. Terry Christian used to be a DJ at Radio Derby. So him, Russell, uh, and Graham Park used to put nights on at the Blue Note in the '80s. Um, anyway, so Russell had done all this stuff before I'd even met him. Do you know what I mean? And obviously, I listened to his pirate radio station in the late '80s. Um, and so anyway, he was just like, he took me on board. He saw in me the raw talent and he saw the enthusiasm and he saw that I was playing music way beyond my years. You know, I was playing music from the seventies and stuff. Um, he saw all that and he kind of just took me under his wing and just made me his, you know, his, his, his protege or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. That's a bit of a pretentious word, isn't it? But, you know, he made me, um, his kind of, he developed me, you know what I mean, in a sense. I mean, he, he can't DJ for Toffee, Russell can't, right, in terms of mixing, right? He's, he, he's, he rang me up the other night from the Caribbean. He lives in the Caribbean now. And he texts me the other night with a voice message, Rob, I've discovered Pioneer DJ and it's, it's changed my life. I'm reborn again. It's, I can mix now. And uh, I said, you're pressing the sync button, are So anyway, but back in the day, he, he wasn't about mixing. He was a selector. And he would, he would just put on the right tunes at the end of the night. Where, so he didn't teach me anything, you know, in terms of DJing skills are out he just he just knew um how to market me and promote me and and 
give me the right gigs. Do you know what I mean? He knew, and he and, and he would educate me on music without a doubt. He'd say, "Have you hit this track? Have you hit that? Blah 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 stuff." I'd missed out on. But no, in terms of technical ability, that was all on me. Mm. But he, he he knew how to develop me and encourage me. He he, he gave me a massive amount of encouragement which I lacked in my life. You know, my dad was a massive encouragement on me, but prior, outside of that, no one, I had no influence. There's my dad and Russell and that was it. I think you see this though time and time again, that you get people that are really good at a certain thing or even multiple things, but they just don't have the kind of focus to knuckle down or they might not know how to market themselves or just do business, deal with people. And then they never fully realise their potential. So, I mean, they, they are all sort of really important things. Um, so what was next in the ascendancy of progress then from this point? Well, as we basically we were at the warehouse from 92 to late 90, well, New Year's Eve 94. And then what happened is Renaissance moved out of the conservatory, which was became Union 1 and Union 2. Do you remember those names? Yes. The bulldoze it now. But um, Renaissance moved out of there in around the same time so we that was a thousand capacity venue so we could double our our, our attendance figures yeah. so we jumped ship from the warehouse to the renaissance as the club scene was growing this was in 95 all through 95 all through until the summer of 95 we were flying we were rammed every week and then all of a sudden there was a huge bust um politics got in the way basically bitterness got in the way with certain people and the club got raided and shut down and there was a lot of trouble um, with licensing and stuff. And then, unfortunately, there was a young girl that passed away um, from... She attended the club and passed away some hours later at home. So they blamed, tried to blame it on the club itself rather than the problem on in society. So then we had a few rocky months there and then we moved to Mansfield, Venue 44, for a while. And then after that, we moved to the Eclipse on Babington Lane in Derby, which was Ritz's before that. Huge corporate European leisure commercial club, which was a big risk because it was all shiny brass staircases. And do you know what I mean? It was that, that, that carpet you get in casinos. It was just naff. But the size was like 12, 1300 capacity and it was balconies and it was, it was a great room. Yeah. But it had just been tacked up over the years because it was Ritz's. But the scene was growing so so big at that point. Everything in the pop charts, other than Britpop, was becoming dance music. It became acceptable. You know what I mean? What was once dirty culture and, oh, you know, kids raving in fields had become commercially acceptable. So Russell thought, right, we've got to do this. We've got to do it. If it fails, it fails. We did it, and it just immediately just exploded, and it became a. That's when it became a super club, um, and that's when we took out full spread pages in Mix Mag and adverts, and Pete Tong was and was on the same bill as Boy George in one night. It was just massive. Roger Sanchez was in mm-hmm. town. Everyone played, um, and it got that was ninety six to ninety seven to ninety eight, and in those two years, the music started to change from ninety six into ninety seven. Speed Garage exploded. Yeah. And that just became massive throughout the whole of 97. Um, and then after that, that, after a few months of that, everyone got a bit tired of the speed garage vibe. And then into 98, it was kind of like a, it was flying still, but it was kind of a bit of a grey area. And then all of a sudden, trance music started to come in. Ferry Corsten and, and that kind of European hard euphoric trance sound started to develop. And then the audience kind of changed. The earlier crowd kind of at, we're probably starting to having kids now or growing out of it because yeah. 93, 94 you had your 23, 24 year olds by the end of the 90s they were nearly 30 and the whole new generation came along that were probably born in 1980 
yeah. started to come through and they were full of gusto and so the music landscape started to change for us um, and we, I was still playing warm-up sets at the, at the clips I was doing like some garagey stuff at the start of the night but by the end of the night it was full-on banging 135, 140 BPM trance and then we moved from there to Time in Mansfield Road which was next to Roller World if you're aware it's an Indian restaurant now yeah. then that's where it peaked and then 98 to 2001 we were there and that whole era was just megala super club massive rammed every week um very custom played you know all the big trance djs played armin van buren played everyone that's a massive name now that are on 30 40 quid grand a gig now played for us then for like 500 quid or whatever yeah you know so yeah that, that's how it evolved those those kind of um, time zones those time periods and um as well as this kind of booming progress, you were kind of peaking with your music production, weren't you? So can you just tell us a bit about how you got into the production? Well, as I say, I've always had, always wanted, always dreamed of having a studio um, as a kid. So I've always had samplers, keyboards, drum machines. I've always had loads of bits and bobs. My first studio setup was a Casio SK5 sampler, which was this little tiny keyboard. You could get like three seconds of sample time in it, I think. And then... Uh, a Fostex four-track tape recorder at that, and a Yamaha drum machine, like a kid's top type drum machine. That was what I had, and then it evolved into buying an Akai sampler and S950, and then it evolved into getting a Notorious T with that, and then it evolved into a Windows PC. You know, I've moved with every kind of um, step, um, but by the end of the 90s, I had a, a PC, a proper Windows PC, and was sampling and learning how to do things properly, and um, it just evolved i mean I've, I've, I've got boxes of demos of stuff that you know I've, I've never released or never finished or crap demos that are, i made when i was 17 that i thought were amazing at the time and listen to them now i just cringe but that's the, the 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 learning of it you know um and by the end of the decade i hit the jackpot but people go oh you literally made a hit record and it wasn't it wasn't just literally it was six years of hard work mm. six years of failure after failure after rejection after rejection um, I sent out countless demos to labels, never had nothing back, got some letters back. Oh, it's not for us, it's not theirs. But it gradually, you know, I stumbled upon a, a jackpot. So, yeah, that's how that evolved, really. And what was the song called again? It's just... Um... Everybody by, and under the name The Boy Wonder, which I do regret using that now. But <laughs> at the time, basically, The Boy Wonder name was a joke. I was called Boy Chunder amongst the Progress staff. Because in 94, I think it was, or 93, 94, I was dead young. Me and Russell had this bet that I could neck an entire can of red stripe in one for 20 quid. And he didn't think I could do it. And these were like pint-sized cans. And I said, let's do it. And I went for it and I necked it all the way back. And I literally polished it off. And as I finished the last gulp and he saw it going, he didn't want to give me 20 quid. So he picks me up, squeezed me as high. He's his six and a half foot wrestlers. Picked me up and squeezed me. And I just projectiled all over the dance. The club was empty at this point. It was like three in the morning. We'd cleared out and was having an after drink. And the whole, the entire can just came out on the dance floor. And that was it. Chunder became my name. So it was Boy Chunder for the United. And then when we got to the end of the 90s, it was, we need a name, we need a name. So I was coming up with all these stupid fancy names like XD5 or whatever, some crappy techno-y sort of name. And uh, we just said, let's call it the Boy Wonder for a laugh. you know. And I thought, all right, fair enough, that would do. And it just kind of it worked then. But obviously... I can't call myself that now, do you know what I mean? Man wonder, do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's it's not a name you could carry on where, say, for example, I don't know, you know, if you... That's the thing. 
with me. I have so many chopping and changing. Do you know what I mean? So, but um, no, it, it, that's how that name evolved anyway, yeah. And the song contains a replay of Madonna rather than sample, right? Yeah, yeah. classed as a cover version then. So oh, we, we replayed it in. Um, <clears throat> and then the original sample in that film, uh, sorry, in that song, is from the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, yeah. where there's a guy talking about his wife and he's getting really irate. I'm not talking about one thing, I'm talking about everybody. And then I took that bit, everybody. And that's when he says everybody in the track. That's mm. from the movie Cuckoo's Nest. And we thought we'd get away with that, you know. Anyway, sorry about that, Warner Brothers, but we, we used it. Anyway, so we the, the speech we couldn't use, obviously, because it would have been too much hassle clearing it. Um, so we rewrote it, and then I re-recorded it myself, and I did this rant, and I took snippets of the original speech and put my own words to it, so it was original. Um, listening to it now, it's just it's not very good. It was kind of a rushed job. It's um, catchy. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm on about the speech. Sorry, not right. about the track. The track's fine. It's the speech that I do. We could have done that a lot better. Um, but still, uh, we, we had to get it done. And yeah, that, that was that was insane. That was that whole period. It was kind of like we got to 1999. Um, I was DJing four nights a week, you know. Were you still at the record shop then? No, I quit then. I quit BPM in early 97. I went, I went from 93 to 97. And by 97, I was DJing three nights a week. And it was starting to affect working in the week because I was out three nights I was in Leicester Mansfield Derby whatever I was DJing on Sundays as well I used to run a Sunday night with a guy called John Slater at Boom Club which um, is on Salagate it's a strip club now um, and we used to run a night in there on a Sunday night in there called Delirious and we ran that from 96 to 02 packed solid every Sunday night without fail literally without fail you get two or three hundred people in every Sunday night unheard of now mm. um, so that I would be DJing that night and that was a really successful night for years it just started to... I was getting up for the work late, you know what I mean? I wasn't getting on time. So I quit the record shop. Um, but 1999, when that record was produced, um, it was around it was around this time, it was around May 99. And uh, I made it on my Windows 98 PC, and then I lost it. it it's, in those days when you lost your work, you didn't have yeah. a backup, you know. So I lost all this work, and then my mate came around, Chris, and I said, I've just made this track where I've just lost it all. It's, it was wicked. It was really into it. We'll make it again then. It took me half an hour to build it back up. And it was like, oh, that's good. So then I took it on a mini disc the following night to progress and put it on as my last song in my warm-up set. Um, but I didn't mix it. I just played it through the mini disc through the mixer. And Judge Jules was about to go on um, after me. And he was on Radio 1 at the time. He was a big noise at the time. And he was like, what's this? Get me this. Get me a copy of this. And Russell was like, pound signs. Right, okay. <laughs> Right, we'll print it up, Rob. Let's go in the studio, remake it. Let's get it mastered. Let's get it fixed up, and we'll we'll send we'll print ten copies off. So we went over to Nottingham. Literally, it was it was just like bang, bang, bang. Went straight to Nottingham to the pressing plant. Got Chris King, who ran the pressing plant them days. Who recently passed away. Um, great guy he was. And uh, Chris, can you press us up ten records, ten test pressings? Yeah, sure, no problem. Blah blah blah. So with those ten test pressings, I kept one. Russell kept one. Whatever. We sent one to Pete Tong and one to Judge Jules. Um, and the rest we kept ourselves. Literally a week later, I'm with my mate. It was a Friday night, uh, and we nipped out to the shop um, in his car. And when it came back, my phone was ringing. Um, I didn't have a mobile then. You know, it was all landlines. My landline was ringing, and I picked it up. Hello. And it was my friend. She went, "Just heard your song on radio. One that track you played." Like, I was like, "What? You what? Honestly, because George George just played it." I'm like, "What?" And then an hour later, Pete Tong plays it. Literally bangs it on, played it off the vinyl. I was like, oh my god, and it was just, it just, it, week after that, 
it was uh, everybody wanted the copies so we went straight back to Nottingham another 500 copies please Chris another 500 copies distributed them out I wrangled up a few distributors I knew from the record shop days they banged them out we were gone got any more they rang me up got any more got any more and before you know it we sold 3,000 copies on White Label within two months so then a bidding war ensued after that with all the labels and that's that. it literally blew up just like that it was incredible it was like one of those one-off you know gambling wins so who made the final call on label then was that Russell or you it was me and Russell really we just basically I in some respects um the way things turned out at the time I wished I'd not signed to the label I did but that was then but I'm glad I did now because I'm amongst some pretty legendary names now but basically Ministry of Sound wanted it EMI wanted it Sony wanted it um, a few other dance labels, I can't think of the names now. Um, the Manifesto wanted it, which was Judge Jules's. Judge Jules was a scout for Manifesto, right. which was owned by Universal Mercury. So, um, and we thought Judge Jules bust this record. He broke it. He spent the whole summer playing it in Ibiza and Creamfields and all that. And he kind of pioneered it for us. So we kind of thought, let's go to Manifesto. They just had a huge hit with Dave Morales, The Face, Josh Wink was on there. All these bands are on there. Um, let's get to Manifesto. It's a cooler label. But Ministry could have... We could have gone to Ministry as well. So it was kind of like... I mm, don't know about going to Ministry. So anyway, we, we signed with Manifesto. and um, But yeah, the, the, it, we just decided because we wanted to keep... Because the family vibe sort of thing. Judge Jules was our regular guest at the club. So we kind of knew him. And we kind of developed relationships with him. And it just worked. It worked. And the whole thing did work. Um, and then six months later, when we make the follow-up, the whole thing came crashing down because of um, Massive Attack. Uh, the band banned me from doing a version of their song. Right. Because we covered Unfinished Sympathy with Angie Brown from Bizarre Inc. And the whole thing just fell apart. And I think in, and that was because I was under pressure to make another hit record. And, I didn't, I didn't, and once I felt the pressure, the fun went straight out the window. Yeah. I lost interest in all of it and massive interest in it. And every day was like going to the factory. It was like, oh, this is this sucks. So I went off and made a funk album with my mate <laughs> and just cut ties with all of it. I says, I'm done with this. I'm not doing it anymore. But yeah, um, that that that. But that summer was just pure electric. You know I mean, that was that. And just to clarify for listeners, then you got to number seven in the top ten, which at the time was a pretty big deal. Hmm. At the time, when I was up against Cliff Richard and Craig David, mate, yeah. <laughs> That's nothing to be sniffed, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, number seven UK charts. He went to number one in the club charts, which in them days we had an official club chart before the records came out in the pop charts. So it was Record Mirror, which was uh, Music Week, which is the official kind of um, promo chart, if you like. So it went straight to number one in there, straight to number one in Mix Mag, uh, number one in DJ Mag, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but yeah, number seven it landed at. Now, that came out at Christmas. <clears throat> So, um, had it come out in the summer, it would have gone straight to number one, based on the volumes it sold. But at Christmas, more records sell. So, what they did then, I'm on about, I'm on about records, CDs and cassettes. So, Cliff Richard was releasing his Millennium Prayer. It was good. There's more grannies out there than there are clubbers, do you know what I mean? So, there was no doubt we were going to not get to number one against yeah. Cliff Richard. But... And the midweek chart, where they give you a, a ballpark figure, you, I was at number five, and I thought, bloody hell, wow. But then it landed at seven. And I think at number eight, Ferry Corston was there with his Adagio for Strings trance track. Mm. And then at number two was Craig David and the Artful Dodger with Rewind, I think, if I remember rightly. And then I think it was something like Westlife or in the pop charts as well. So, um, but yeah, you never, at that time of the year, you sell more units 
but you'd stay you don't get to the number one spot so yeah i guess if at the time just one of those three tracks had been around then you maybe would have got more sales with one enough for it to go to number one yeah yeah yeah, definitely but it was you see the thing is the truth is about the pop charts in the 90s right people think politics are corrupt now let me tell you the pop charts were so corrupt in those days because when i used to work in the record shop reps from the major labels emi warners sony polydor they would come around and give you free records right so for example they're trying to promote the new band they would give you 10 copies on 12 10 copies on cassette 10 copies on cd single they would give them you for free bang them out at 99p right but every day scan two of these through the machine in those days before the internet you had the a, a scanning pen that was directly linked to the phone line and it went to a machine called gallop in london yeah. which collected chart data so every one that was scanned counted as a sale so that's how these records got the charts by the end of the week but obviously the record industry was so corrupt that we would be asked in order to get the free stock we scanned a few records through on the side not even sold them just scan them through and put them yeah. back on the shelf and that's how so many records got high up in the charts you see um but it was a different kind of kettle of fish at the in the end of um at christmas time because people bought more records at christmas just gifts and things like that you know um, not to say that any of mine weren't corrupt. I'm pretty sure there was plenty that were. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like Cliff Richard did yeah. not get to number one on pure merit. Nobody got to number one on pure merit. Even records that were destined to sell like Oasis, you would be scanning them through. The Oasis and Blur... Remember the Oasis and Blur battle? Yeah. I remember that specifically because I worked in the shop. And we had EMI ringing us up to scan a couple of Blurs through for us. And then you had Creation, Creation and Sony put a few Oasis through, you know. It, the whole thing's rigged, mate. Everything's rigged. So, but, you know, as I say, sales were healthy regardless. And, you know, paychecks were wealthy, healthy as well. Yeah. Not like now, you know. Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oneadj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. So we're getting to about sort of 2000, 2001. Is that where the kind of club scene started to decline. The 90s super club era started to, to, to petter out without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. I think basically what happened was a generation of kids that grew up in the 80s and 70s and 80s under Thatcher and Tories had grown up under all of that oppression, not oppression, it's a ridiculous word to use, but grew up under all of that crap. And then when 
the 90s evolved. The irony was that we were still under a Tory government for many years until 97. So we had all these this generation of kids raving and raving throughout the whole of the 90s. Labour take over 97. And then by the end of the decade, the millennium, the clubs became so greedy that the millennium parties, it progress, money pennies, they were charging 200 quid to get in or something like £100 a ticket for a normal average club night. DJs were charging five grand for a gig than they would normally charge a grand. Everyone just became bloated and greedy. I think one DJ had a helicopter to fly him to three venues across the UK at one night so he could yeah. coin in 15k for three gigs. It, it, everyone got greedy and then everyone, the customer at the bottom end, realised that I'd rather stay at home and have a party with my mates, get the deck set up. And, and that's what a lot of people did. I know a lot of people did that. Um, and so you had a whole generation of people that are kind of been spending all their money on clubbing and going out and fashion and music. And they got to the end of the decade and a lot of them kind of hit 30, late 20s, 30, and just thought, I've had enough now. I want to take a break and have a family and move on. So when we got over to 2000, 2001, like chill out music became really popular. It's almost like the come down of the 90s. Do you know what I mean? Now I look at that in retrospect. You know, people start listening to Dido, for God's sake. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and it's like Zero Seven and, and, you know, bands like Lemon Jelly and that started to come through. It was great music. But if you look at it, if you think about it, everyone got sick and tired of the all the time and they wanted a bit of chill. So chill out music became very popular, very commercial. Moby's album became huge, didn't it? Yeah. All that kind of thing became kind of leveled out the scene. So... A generation moved on whilst the generation took over, which was the Gatecrasher kids. Um, and the hard house sort of scene really boomed out at that point. Gatecrasher and Sunday Essential and all that sort of stuff. Tidy tracks. That stuff went full on for a few years. So it kind of like just changed hands. Do you know what I mean? With our generation. I was still doing it without a doubt. I was doing bar gigs. I was doing progress still on the odd occasion. But that faded in 2002. Um, and then another couple took over called Blend. But it was all funky house by then. Everything kind of came a bit more funky house. It was it chilled out a bit. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, that's what happened. 2000, 2001, it was the big come down, I think. And were you still DJing and doing residencies and stuff? I was still DJing. I did progress still. Um, and then I started doing my own nights, a couple of bits and bobs here and there. And then Blend came along, Scott Lorimer. Um, he was a DJ in Derby, good lad. He set a night called Blend, so I started playing for him regularly. Um, I was also living off royalties, which were quite healthy at that yeah. time. And then I set up my own little record label, so I was making money doing that. Um, and I was still doing a few gigs here and there, and I was doing remixes for some labels. So I was kind of still ticking over. And then I got a little job in a record shop, actually, funnily enough, again. Um, I did that for a while. And then my son was born in 2003, and that just changed everything. Because um, I'd been doing it for 10 years by this point. Yeah. Even though I was only 27. Um, and then I invested a load of money into uh, secondhand vinyl uh, at the time and bought loads of vinyl. And that's when eBay started kind of taking off in the UK. And I set up an eBay shop and I lasted three years doing that. So by the time my son was a toddler, the whole thing had passed, you know what I mean? But I was just started doing bar work then for Russell, Susumi, little little things like that. So I kind of put DJ in, in, the, in the 2000s. DJing for me became a part-time... Um, extra cash do you know what I mean bar work bar gigs which were fun but it wasn't the full on the, the hedonism had gone do you know what I mean yeah and I think we've discussed this a few times on the podcast it's it's a difficult thing and it's like a, a bit of a gift in a way if DJing's not your bread and butter because then you can have a little bit more kind of control over the sort of gigs that you take 
Whereas if it's your full-time thing, then sometimes you can just be like, oh, how have I ended up DJing this sort of place? It's a chore. Oh, mate, I've done so many gigs where I've, I've done it because I've needed the money sometimes. I mean, I've fell on hard times, which don't let, put me wrong. There have been times when I've needed to do the gigs. Um, and I've done gigs where I'm literally, I'm, I, my soul has just completely fell out. You know, I'm just like, oh, my God, what am I doing this for? I will never, ever do a bar gig again. Never. Um, I've done so many of them. And like four or five hour sets, and it's like it's so soul crushing because the the last one I did was pre pandemic, so it was kind of like 2016 to 2018. I had a two year run at a bar in town, which was really well paid, but it was just soulless. It was horrible. The clientele were constantly it was a revolving door, and you end up playing the same, uh, the same track three times in the night to, to keep the current clientele happy. And half the stuff I was playing was just like horrible mechanized rubbish because that's what. The management wanted and it, it developed it started off being play what you want do what you want do your thing soulful ass funky ass groovy hip-hop to it's got to be capital fm do you know what i mean and it was yeah. like and in the end i was scowling you know the internet to find tunes to play weekly that were a good remix of a crappy pop record and that was my own fault i kind of just, i could have just walked away but the money was so tasty at the time yeah. i became more bothered about the money than the gig and and I'd vowed then when I ended that in 2018, I vowed never to do a bar gig again, and I've never have done. I will never touch the bars again. Um, but now, if I do a gig now, it's got to be something that I really enjoy. I don't do many, and last one, the last really good one I did was at the bunker for Guy Chipley, and you know those guys near the bunker is it Vines? Oh, okay. And the roof and the loft there, it's like a little um, boiler room set. It was brilliant. Oh, nice. Um, and I did like an acid techno-y sort of breakbeat kind of disco thing there which was you know a mixed acid ass with tech with i say techno that's a, a disco-y house that's kind of edgy with acid stuff and it was a full-on set with the and the crowd i was older to be all their dad do you know what i mean they were all like 19 20 year old kids here's me at 46 banging out these tunes you know and they're looking at me like some sort of alien i'm like don't worry about that you know but yeah that was that, that them the gigs now have got to be worth doing for me do you know what I, mean? I don't need the money anymore so i'm, I'm over that i don't need to um, worry about oh I've got to do this for my image or I've got to be still out there it's, it's got to be worth doing for me because I've had the glory days I've had all that I don't need that anymore I don't seek that anymore I just if I do a gig it's just got to be worth doing you know what I mean it's got yeah. to be something I can select the music um, properly without having to think oh have I got to satisfy that audience have I got to satisfy that audience when the bar gigs I've got to please them, I've got to please them, I've got to please them, and it's like, no way. Yeah, it's a tricky one, you know, there's so many different ways to exist as a DJ, and we talked in particular to Santero, who was on, who used to be based in Nottingham, about how he had a Ministry of Sound residency, and then he had to keep all his other kind of bar gigs and things almost secret, because that kind of diminished the brand, or endangered the brand, so yeah, that that is super tricky to, to manage. But yeah, just just going back to your timeline then, Rob. So you kept producing all this time, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a couple of spells out. I mean, 2003 when my son was born, I had a full recording studio, which I put on hold. I had everything. I had a Fender Rhodes. I had a big desk, the lot. Um, and I moved it all into the home, into the spare bedroom at the home, or the spare living room at the home, where I lived at the time with my son's mum. And then I put it on hold for a while because I was running this business. I was selling these records. And then... At that time, when I was started doing little bar work, and it, Susumi was like a bar gig, but it was, it was a cool bar. 
and it was it wasn't like full of idiots coming in drunk and you know hen parties yeah. and all that crap. And was it, that owned by Russell? Russell owned that. Yeah, it was basically assuming means progress in Japanese. So right. that was Russell's next phase. The club scene. A lot of the club promoters from the nineties ended up opening bars in the early two thousands. You see. That was the next phase, late bars. So that's why a club scene that we had died because why pay 10, 12 quid to get in the club and dance till three and we can get to a late bar and dance yeah. to the similar sort of music for free, you know? So it was a no brainer. So those, when I started DJing again, after my son was born, six months later, I started getting into the, getting into DJing again for Russell. Um, I would play uh, off CDJ, started using CDJs and the, the, the CDJs came out because there was the silver one. That came out. I can't remember which what it model it was. No, no, Pioneer. Oh, okay. The Pioneer CDJs that came out are early two thousands, mid early. There was like a, they acted like a, you know, the one with the f the first good wheel on them that you yeah, could actually yeah. proper scratch with it. It was like they were really cool, and I started putting loads of stuff onto CD, banging loads of CDs together, so I could get 12, 13 tracks on one disc. Why am I carrying two bags of records and breaking my neck when I could do this? Why buy? five pounds six pound record when i can download it off the internet blah, blah blah which we all did off limewire and all that napster and all that in them days um so i started moving into cdjs very very quickly and before you know it, i had a little tiny wallet like this with about two thousand records in me well it was like come on this is a no-brainer i'm looking at my records in my ass and there's cupboards full there's a garage full it's just thousands and i'm just like do i really need these anymore this, this is the way forward so I started gradually with my eBay business selling second-hand records. I started selling my own off. Massive mistake now, because some of them <laughs> records are worth hundreds, and I mean yeah. hundreds. Um, I sold all my Britpop, all my Oasis stuff that I had all original pressings of. I sold a Smashing Pumpkins album that was worth about 600 quid now for like 100 quid. There's one of 10,000 or something. But all the stuff I'd collected, just as a collector in the 90s, like stuff that wasn't dance-related, I sold all that. And then I started selling my house off and my hip-hop because I thought, I'm going to burn it all to CD, and I've still got it. Um, this is before YouTube existed, so it's just when YouTube started. So you you weren't you weren't unsure that you were going to hear this music again. You know, you didn't realise that Napster was going to become iTunes and all that. So I'm selling all my vinyl off, I'm selling it, I'm making good money at the time from it, and putting it away and storing it. So I sold everything, I sold everything, and I went pure CDJ. Do you know what I mean? For years, for 10 years at least, um... I regret it now, obviously, but that's just through nostalgia. But even if I had them records now, I'd be like, why have I still got this? You know, <laughs> it's until you let something go, you wish, wish you had it. So anyway, I'm, I'm building up a massive collection of CDJs, uh, CDRs, and I've got a box in the garage full of all my CDs from the, that I've burnt over the years. And there's just stacks of them. And they're all, half of them are scratched now, you know, because they're only copies, aren't they? Yeah. So they're all knackered. And they've, they've got no, no nostalgic value whatsoever, whereas my records have. Because you remember buying it, you remember putting it on the sleeve, the artwork, the smell of it. Whereas I've got stacks of CDs in the in the garage. I'm just like, but I'm not going to bin them in case there's a revival, yeah. <laughs> you know, or something, or there's something on there that I've lost, some track that I can't find online, whatever. But it, it, from 2003-4, I went CDJ, pretty much fully, and that was it. Yeah. So and then I'm then around about. Ten years ago, I started just buying a couple of records again. I, don't, I got, I went on Juno one day, and there was a record I wanted. I couldn't find it anywhere on MP3, or, or so I just bought the vinyl, and it felt good again. I was like, "Oh, I've got a record for post." And then gradually, I started buying records again and again. And then when lockdown happened, 
I just went into complete overdrive and my postman was coming every day because yeah. I was bored at home on Discogs you know it was like what else can you do and since then I've not stopped buying records and I've then I've got decks again I've, I've bought some Technics again um, and I've built up I've just bought this the other week the 10 on DJ I wish I'd bought that years ago that's absolutely brilliant it's got a proper little 7 inch vinyl lot yeah and slip my under there and everything oh, nice. and it acts like the deck and it, it's just a dual layer deck so it's two decks in one lot it's got two outputs you've got a deck A and deck B so it's right. two CDJs in one. Oh, nice. It's absolutely brilliant. So that's given me a massive boost at the minute. So that now has got me thinking, do I want to stop buying records more? I've gone around the circle again. Mm. I've just bought a batch of records yesterday and I bought a batch of records last week and I keep buying, um, but this thing is going to stop me from spending so much money on vinyl. I'm going to start going on track source a lot more and downloading you know some yeah. webs again and you've had some quite successful digital releases as well haven't you yeah um i've had one it's probably three i've been involved in four number ones over the last 10 years online i've had a number one in the 90s in the dance charts with everybody i had a number one remix in 2002 with the rhythm masters on radio one's pete tong's essential selection whoever it was the essential countdown um, and then I had a number one in 2015 with a track called Bionic Love, which is like a disco edit I did. That was number one in Juno. And then in 2021, I had a number one on an album that was part of this album that went straight to number one in Juno as well. So I've had a number one in each of the last de four decades, if you like, 90s, 2000s, 2010s and the 20s. So you are likely Richard a bit. <laughs> the Millennium Prayer, mate. All the way through, mate. So the Millennium Bug. So yeah, I've I've had I've been involved in some form of number one. No matter how minor they might be to some people. The Juno chart means nothing to anyone other than the disco DJs. But nevertheless, it's you know, it's, I've still I've, I'm still involved. Yeah. I'm still doing it, yeah. do you know what I mean? And that's the thing, and that's why I still invest in equipment and you know it, it, I love it, you know, I love it, I, you know. And you're offering mentoring for DJs, aren't you? Not so much DJs, producers. Um, I don't do DJ mentoring. I do production uh, mentoring. So basically my business, Waxidist.com, I teach people online one-on-one -one, one -on -one production. So if someone will come to me, they want to make Disco House, they don't know where to start, or they know where to start, but they don't know how to finish tracks, or they want to learn to play chords, or they want to, they don't know how to put the right... Um, sounds together so they want to they hear a track by XYZ artist how does he make that let me show you and then I teach them and <clears throat> build build their confidence up like that and then they get them to be releasing records I've set people up that have gone from zero to having them at record label yeah. um, and I've set other people up that just want to learn how to do edits or they want to learn how to remix or they want to learn how to just play the keys or whatever I teach the whole nine yards yeah and it's mostly though it's got to be disco house funky house deep house lo-fi um, some hip-hop beats, I suppose. Not hip-hop itself, not rapping, but the beat yeah. side of things, production side of things. But yeah, all that kind of thing. Um, keyboards, pianos, that's what I do, yeah, with that, yeah. I love it. I love doing that. It's great. It's hard work sometimes. Um, but, you you know, like any job, isn't it? it gets a slug at some point. DJing was a slug when it was a passion. And then you go through waves. But at the moment, I'm enjoying it. I'm doing YouTube videos regularly. I've got a good little community around me. I've got people that are coming forward and... Be emailing me saying if it wasn't for you I wouldn't be releasing music I'm, your videos have helped me and, and that's nice to get you know what I mean yeah. it's great and, and also I'm just putting together trying to put together an album at the minute of unsigned artists on my label because I've got my record label as well um, and 
I'm trying to get a group of people to release their music that wouldn't dare normally come forward. I'm trying to bring out, I'm emailing people privately and that, that, yeah. I've, that I've taught in the past and that. Let me release one of your tracks. Because I want to get people to, you know, to believe that you can release your music, you know, because so many people will fear releasing tracks. I know people that make tracks, they've got loads stacked away, but they'll never release them. And the barrier to entry is so low for releasing now. Of course it is. It is. It's massively. I mean, it, there is so much crap out there. I mean, there's 120,000 songs a day come out on Spotify or on the internet in general, roughly. Um, and to even for, for me, I mean, I don't, I don't push myself massively because I've got so many things going on. I don't push my own musical um, releases as much as I should. If I focus solely on that, I, I, I would. But I don't. I, I like to dip into all sorts of areas. But the barrier for releasing is easy. I mean, I've put blog posts out and videos out, showing people how to set their own record label up in ten easy steps. Mm. You don't need any money. You just need time. You just yeah. need to, to. You know, you can get your music distributed like that. It's so easy now. Um, and there is no, I mean, the, before the internet, you know, you're the gatekeepers were your record labels, EMI. And, and if you wanted to do it independently, which you could, you'd pressed up thousand white labels, distribute them around record shops. Anybody could do that. And then a lot of people did, but obviously it still cost 500 to a thousand pound back in those days to release a white label up to or from, you know, and now it's zero. So the software's free. You can download a, a digital workstation for free. You can download plugins for free. You can use samples. You can sample packs, whatever. You can make a track in minutes. You can do it on your phone, as you know. Yeah. Um, so now there are so many people doing it, but I'm trying to... So many people will still fear doing it. You know, oh, I'm worried about what he's going to say. or what. I've released records that I'm absolutely in shambles. I'm looking at them and going, God, that's, why did I do that? The bass line's too low on that. This is rubbish on that. That sounds right. I'm no worse critic. I'll listen to something I released 10 years ago. Oh, my God. Get it, get it, pull it. But I don't. I just let's leave it. Just whatever. It's lost in the mind. You know what I mean? It's lost in the... And it's the same with DJing, though, as well. Like People just worry about taking that first step, thinking, oh, I can't mix, or I'm not good enough, or I've not done eight years or whatever and like none of that stuff should like put you off going out really because it's ultimately just get yourself out there experience it, experience that buzz yeah exactly exactly it's like um you know like you say i mean i i enjoy doing sometimes i do tiktok lives and stuff mm. um videos and that and but you know it's i just enjoy dj at home you know now i do little videos online and it still gives me a buzz, do you know what I mean? But I'm not actively seeking going out and doing gigs yeah. every week. You know, I don't I don't need to, I don't want to. But when the old gig comes up, I'll go and do it gladly, do you know what I mean? And when I do it, I'll put all my effort into it, you know what I mean? But people that are, are terrified of, oh, I don't want to go out and DJ, I'll do it, do it at a mate's birthday party or something. But that's it. It's like, well, then that's all you ever will do. You know, you've got to step out of your comfort zone. And I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm terrible for sitting in my comfort zone. Do you yeah. know what I mean? If I spent time, I could really turn that turntable inside out and do some really crazy stuff. But I'm happy just doing the the bare minimum on it, the basics, what I can do on it. Um, but yeah, people need to step out of the comfort zone. But I mean, I stepped out of my comfort zone years ago and I've done everything I needed to do, I've, I, I, in, you know, in that sense. Nowadays, I mean, there's some brilliant DJs out there. You know, musically, it's not my kind of thing, but have you seen James Hype DJ? No. He's, he's, he's obviously a banging commercial house DJ, but what he does on the technic, on the turntables, not Technic, sorry, the Pioneer CDJs, he's incredible. He has about four on the go and he's, you know, he's like, it's brilliant. And he stepped out of his comfort zone, you know, it's, it's, he stands out. 
is what I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think a really kind of important life lesson as well is to be prepared to step out of your comfort zone. I mean, I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I'm quite a part-timer at it and I'm not great, if I'm honest, but I've done a couple of competitions and I've just found it the most nerve-wracking thing to do. But once you've done it, win, lose or draw, you know, you, you come away and you've got that buzz and that satisfaction that you've done it. And it's the same with DJing, particularly if you're doing battling or the first few times you play out, you know, your hands are absolutely shaking trying to get the needle on. And it's it's so kind of character building and so good for you. And like, I guess that if you've kind of done that in the 90s, you know, gone out of your comfort zone and been in front of everyone, then you know now you've not got to prove yourself to anyone anymore. No, I mean, funny enough though, but when was it about eight years ago i did a i finished a music degree i did a music degree i started one 10 years ago um because i wanted to become a teacher um and anyway at the end of the music degree it was a popular music production degree um we had to do a live performance at the playhouse in derby um and it's on the internet somewhere still the video and we did this funk sort of band me and a couple of lads bearing in mind i'm old enough to be the lads dads on the degree um i was playing keyboards and it was a live audience there's probably 150 people there um, and I was on stage under the spotlight and I was playing keyboards and we did a cover version of No Diggity, Blackstreet. Mm. Uh, we did a funked it up. And honestly, I'm dripping with sweat, mate. Honestly. And I've, I've stood in front of thousands of people DJing yeah. over the years. I've played countless parties and whatever, but performing a keyboard on stage for the first time in in years. I've, done, I've only ever performed live in a keyboard probably three or four times in my life um, in bands. Um, one was an acoustic band which was chilled out so that was alright but I was like sweating but you know mm. if I'd have stuck to that it's just sticking to it do it every week once a week whatever you know you get over it you become it becomes normal doesn't it but that I know what you mean that first once I hit that first chord I was sweating don't do anything clever don't do anything clever in my head don't, you know just you know, play the generic stuff and within a couple of minutes I got over it and just yeah it's just getting that adrenaline dump out the way really isn't it um, just mindful of time, do you think there's anything that we've not covered? Not at the minute, really, mate. No, as I say, all I'm doing at the minute is just, you know, getting back into... I've set up my arrangement, and my start, as you can see, I've got a live rig there. I've got an acid machine there, 303. I've got a sampler behind that, which you can't see. I've got the rolling keyboard, which is a four-track sequencer, which is all synced to that. And then I've got this Denon CD deck that I've bought here, which is absolutely amazing, and my vinyl deck. So I'm going to... I'm making a hybrid. I'm putting all this together to do um, uh, some new sets, some live sets online. I'm going to try and get, I want to try and get some some sort of recognition on there and do that and get people to see me doing that so that I can probably get some more work out, you know, doing that. If yeah. I'm going to go out and DJ again, I want to do that. I want to take that with me. I want to do something new rather than go out and DJing, which I will do, but take a rig with me yeah. and live jam on top of DJing. That's and my next thing. something that sets you apart, yeah, yeah. isn't it? It's like Carl Cox has just started performing live techno sets with all his equipment he's mm. kind of given up just dj and he's he's bought all the equipment to the table and his drum machines and his synths and that i want to do that now you know for myself i don't need to just dj i want to add another string to the yeah. bow now do you know what i mean so that's that's what really that's where that's my next phase really i suppose is live hybrid dj performance that's yeah. my next thing mate that's great I think it never fully disappears, does it? No, no. Oh, mate, I tell you, I've had months where I've hated it and I've looked at records and my things, oh, I'm not touching you again. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm done with clubs. I'm done with DJing. I'm done with this. Done with music. Yeah, we all go through it. 
And then you just, you just you gravitate back to it. It's like a magnet. You just can't stop. It's a force. You, yeah. It's within. It's, it's either within. I know people that have been bedroom DJs or they've tried, tried DJing and have done a bit of it and they've walked away and they've now got secure jobs and they've they're done with it. You know. Um, whereas for me, music is just it's in my blood. I can't help like a spider that spins his web, mate. I just don't know what else to do. You just gotta just keep. I just keep gravitating towards it no matter what. Yeah. And it's music is the only constant in my life. I've had, you know, all, all through my life, music is the only thing that's ever given me full-on true comfort, you know, in dark periods and whatever, you know. Um, and that's that's what it is. I think I could happily sit with my records on my own for hours on end and be happy doing that. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I was happy listening to my records in my bedroom, my seven inches and my tapes and taping radio stations on my own, even though I used to be out with my mates all the time as well. When I got home at night, I'd go off into my own little world and make little tape covers and just all the all stuff you do as a teenager, you know what I mean? Um, and, yeah, music is the only constant, and it will always be there until I breathe my last breath, mate. <laughs> Amazing. Just one last question then before we go. Is there any one particular person you'd like to see on this podcast, and if so, Why? Um, I think you should get At Jazz on this podcast because he is an absolute legend. He's a local legend. He's got so many um, releases under his belt, so many accolades. He's massively revered. Um, he's the top of his tree. He's a good friend of mine. We go way back. Um, yeah, I think he's, he would be very good. Rob Webster, thanks very much for your time and best of luck with everything. You're welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me, mate. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.